The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast. Dr. Taz. Your good health journey starts now. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back to the show where every episode we're trying to help you write your own personal prescription for power. That's right. This is Power RX. And joining me today is Dr. Ruscio. Dr. Ruscio gives smart, busy people suffering from symptoms like bloating, fatigue, and unexplained weight gain simple steps to start living a healthy and enjoyable life again, no matter how long you've been suffering. So many of you suffer with gut issues. Dr. Ruscio has spoken at the Cybo Symposium Summit, the Paleo FX, the Ancestral Health Symposium, Sean Croxton Digestion Sessions, as well as many other international conferences and top health podcasts. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ruscio. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you. I've got to admit, this is a question that comes up over and over again in practice. And when I speak to people, everybody's really, first of all, concerned about gut health. And they're super confused about SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, really confused about what that is. Do they have it? How do, how do they treat it? Tell us a little bit about how you jumped into the world of gut health and how you became so specific in dealing with SIBO. Oh, well, I would love to. And as I'm sure many listening have probably heard before in various interviews, I had my own personal health experience, which diverted me down the path into more integrative medicine with a focus on gut health. Long story short, when I was in college, I went from feeling really good overall to having insomnia, brain fog, fatigue, mood dips, and this led me on a journey to discover what the answer was. It ended up actually being an intestinal infection that was causing all those symptoms, hmm. but I didn't realize that right out of the gate. I was pursuing what I thought was hypothyroidism or low testosterone or heavy metal toxicity or adrenal fatigue, and, and so I, I did what you know, wouldn't be unexpected to do. I went on the internet. I started searching my symptoms, and of course, you pull out various articles and videos and what have you, and that's all fine and good, but I didn't have the greater context of understanding how important it is to start your journey with a gut evaluation in case you have something in your gut that's contributing to your symptoms. So I spent several months spinning my wheels. Eventually, I determined that I had an intestinal infection that was the underlying cause of all my symptoms, even though I didn't really have much in the way of digestive symptoms specifically. And it was addressing that underlying cause in the gut that finally allowed me to have long-lasting improvements in my symptoms. And then as I got into clinical practice, it turns out that my experience was fairly common. And there was many other people who were pursuing what they thought was the cause of their symptoms, thyroid, adrenal, and not to say that sometimes those aren't the cause, but in many cases, there's an underlying gut problem that's really at the root cause of someone's symptoms. And this can go all the way to something like brain fog or insomnia even, and by addressing that, they can see very profound improvements. And so that's become a progressive area of focus for me in practice because it just delivers so much in the way of symptomatic improvement. It's so funny how so many of us have entered the field after our own you know, personal issues, really searching for answers on our own. So you started this right out of college. So you would have been pretty young when your symptoms began. Is that correct? Yeah, I was about 23. And the doctor who treated me said, because I had an amoebic infection, which is a, it's a fairly pathogenic infection, he said, this is going to be a unpleasant process, but it's also going to be one of your biggest gifts. 
because it's going to teach you firsthand what patients go through and, and what happens in your body when you have an imbalance in the gut. And he was absolutely right. It, it was not pleasant in, in the moment, but I learned so much from it. And it, it gave me such a valuable grounding experience that has been like the set of the sail to help me stay focused on this very important area for, for people's health. I think it's such an important area. You know, I'm, some of my background is in Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, and, you know, they recognize the importance of the gut thousands of years ago. This was not a new or novel idea or concept for them, so much so that they believed if you didn't have good gut health, you really didn't have health. That's really how they defined everything. I think it's taken us in Western medicine a really long time to catch up to that idea and to that philosophy. Why, in your opinion, you know, just thinking about your practice and what you deal with day in and day out, why do you think gut health is so important. I have my own opinion just based on my experience. I'm curious to, to know what you think. Well, we know that the small intestine is responsible for over 90% of caloric absorption. So there's one huge aspect. If you don't absorb mm -hmm. your food well and your, and your nutrients well, it's almost akin to eating an unhealthy diet because you're absorbing an unhealthy amount of nutrients. So that's one foundational factor. And there's also the observation that the small intestine contains the largest density of immune cells in the entire body. And so we have this very immune rich organ, which is our small intestine. And if things there are not in harmony, if the immune system is reacting, then that's a source of chronic inflammation in the body. Yes. And that inflammation, as, as we know, can cause a litany of symptoms and correlates with a number of conditions. So those may be two of, of the more um, important aspects, the, the way you impact your nutrient absorption and the way you can affect this, the status of the immune system and inflammation, which are very tightly linked. There's others, but I think those would probably be two of the most profound mechanisms through which the gut health leads to such an impact on one's overall health more broadly. And for those of you listening, I really hope you caught that. That is a central tenet as to why gut health is so important. So much of our immune system is centered there. So much of the whole process of inflammation begins there. And honestly, I'm sure Dr. Ruscio would agree, most of what we deal with today in terms yeah. of medical practice are diseases of the immune system or are diseases of inflammation. So this is this is a really, really important topic. And I hope everyone's uh, you know taking notes and just trying to get whatever you can get out of this particular episode, you know, what are some of the reasons or some of the, what, what causes some of these problems in the gut? I mean, I don't think anyone sets out thinking about gut health and certainly wanting to cause issues. And I'm sure you've experienced this as well. This is kind of the why of why someone who eats perfectly healthy and really is meticulous about their diet, you know, is still unhealthy when this particular aspect of their health is not taken care of. What do you think causes a lot of these gut problems? And, you know, you make such a critical observation there, which is if someone's been eating healthy and they're still not feeling much better, then it's very important to not try to necessarily force a dietary solution to what may be a non-dietary problem. And that's one right. mistake I see people make quite often, which is they, they go on progressively more restrictive diets. And, and yes, sometimes we may need a more restrictive diet in the short term, but it, it's very important not to go on a diet that's highly, highly restrictive, at the same time missing the fact that you have an active issue in the gut that's the cause of all your symptoms. So I just want to echo that because that's such an important concept. But regarding underlying problems in the gut that, that can uh, be the, the, the causative factor, 
food intolerances, and I'm using that term loosely, but eating mm-hmm. foods that don't agree with you, probably the most foundational because that's going to be the easiest to fix and, and the most cause-based. And, and there are a few different diets and we can go more into detail about them in a moment. But the way I, I look at the food aspect is there are really two main factors to control for. And this is once you get over the basic dietary hurdle of, of no processed foods and added sugars. And, Sugar. and you know, once you're eating a healthy whole food based diet, then the, the two chief items to concern oneself with, in, in my opinion, would be food that your body does not react well to because you're a bit food intolerant, meaning you have this, for lack of a better term, inflammatory reaction. So some people will have some mm-hmm. inflammation if they eat gluten or dairy or soy. So cutting out the common, again, using the term loosely, allergens that may not agree with the gut and, and cause this infl- uh, inflammatory immune reaction. And then the other underneath the food umbrella would be not consuming foods that don't work well for your microbiota or, or the world of bacteria and fungus in your gut specifically. Mm-hmm. And, and these are known as foods that are rich in FODMAPs, which are seemingly healthy foods on the surface. And this can throw people sometimes because of foods such as broccoli or asparagus for some people, especially for people with digestive symptoms, may actually be contributing to your symptoms. It's not to say you never eat those again, but you may have to go through a short phase where you curtail the amount of FODMAP, excuse me, FODMAP or prebiotic-rich foods that you're consuming. And, and just briefly, why that's relevant is because these foods that are rich in FODMAPs or prebiotics are very good at feeding bacteria. And that can be a good or a bad thing, depending on what's going on underneath the hood of your digestive tract. If you have a bacterial overgrowth, known as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, as you alluded to earlier, if you eat a diet rich in these FODMAPs and these prebiotics, then you're feeding an overgrowth. And of course, that can exacerbate the problem. So those are two places to start an elimination diet and or a low FODMAP diet. More with Dr. Taz coming up. For a lot of us, a delicious home-cooked meal is the ultimate luxury. It sounds so simple, but with all the planning, shopping, and kitchen knowledge required, not to mention all the time, we're lucky if we can even pull it off once a week. Now you can get healthy, delicious meals on the table with Sun Basket. That's right, Sunbasket delivers meal prep kits right to your door, making healthy cooking easy and convenient for any busy lifestyle and for any dietary needs or preferences, including paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, and there's a family option too. And you pick from 18 weekly recipes. Just in the last few weeks, I prepared chorizo chili, Tuscan vegetable soup, two bean enchiladas, Saigon beef sliders, and just delivered right to my doorstep, very exciting, Yucatan turkey chili verde and roasted paprika chicken. Come on, you've wanted to try a meal kit for a long time. Do it. Sunbasket is so cool, and I can't stress this enough. Sunbasket features organic and clean ingredients, and each delicious, easy-to-prepare meal is ready in about 30 minutes, making healthy cooking easy and convenient. There's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. Just go to sunbasket.com slash 
whole health to learn more and to get $35 off your first order. You got to try this. Go to sunbasket.com slash whole health for $35 off sunbasket.com slash whole health. And now back to the Dr. Taz show. Okay, I'm going to stop you because you've said two things that I know everyone starts, their eyes start to to swim a bit when they hear these words, and I can see the flesh and the panic the minute they hear them as well. So let's, let's unwind them just a bit. So the basics are the basics. We can't make those any better, unfortunately. I wish we could, but processed foods, sugars, you know, diets, high in food additives, preservatives, all of those type of things are going to be bad for the gut. So some of this is our Western lifestyle, convenience foods, packaged foods, and what they've done. But once you accomplish or sort of hit that layer one of removing that stuff from your diet, the next conversation to have is getting into what is SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and what is the FODMAP diet. And Dr. Russia, I will tell you, like patients try really hard with this diet, but get super frustrated with it. Let's for just a second, in your opinion, how would you best describe the symptoms and signs of SIBO and how would somebody know that they have it? And then from there, let's help them with that FODMAP diet. What are like the top five things you would tell them because they have SIBO and it's, it's confirmed either through their history or testing or things like that, this is what they probably need to do next. Help us bridge that because I just see the struggle when I'm working with patients or even, you know, speaking on this topic where people get super, super confused about this. Sure. Sure. And and it's very understandable. And, and I agree with you completely, which is why I think it's important people obtain information on this issue. That's, that's well thought out and and not overzealous because you're absolutely right. Sometimes people are obtaining the information perhaps from a well-intentioned but an overzealous source, and that may cause Mm -hmm. them to have more fear around small intestinal bacterial overgrowth than is justifiable. So I I just want to make sure to say that most of what I've seen my patients read on the internet regarding SIBO makes SIBO look far worse than it actually is. If you're obtaining confident advice that's evidence-based, it's not something to be overly concerned about. It's very treatable. And so I just want to preface my comment by saying that because I think from a a mental perspective, this may provide some psychological ease. But small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, essentially, as the name alludes, is a condition of excessive bacterial growth in the small intestine. And you can test this with a breath test, although I, I don't think that is as necessary as it's often portrayed to be. It it can Mm -hmm. be helpful, but you don't necessarily need to have the testing. Um, Now, the symptoms, you you have your classical box of symptoms, which would be your IBS-like symptoms, abdominal pain, bloating, and altered bowel function, meaning you have constipation, diarrhea, or sometimes you oscillate between the two. Mm -hmm. And then there are some other similar digestive symptoms we're seeing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth correlated with reflux, indigestion, heartburn, probably the most common. And the here's where it gets a little bit more complicated, though, because there are other non-digestive symptoms that can be associated to SIBO or more broadly to impaired digestive health. And this is where it can make it difficult to say if I have XYZ symptoms, I may have SIBO or a similar gut imbalance. We know, for example, that 
you can have a gut problem or SIBO that can manifest the digestive symptoms. That's kind of an easy one to piece together. Right. But we've also seen SIBO highly correlated with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We've seen certain gut imbalances when treated improve thyroid autoimmunity. We see certain gut imbalances correlated with mood problems like anxiety and depression and brain fog. Mm-hmm. We see some trials showing the treatment you go to improve metabolism via cholesterol markers and blood sugar markers. We see the treatment of SIBO able to improve rosacea and certain dietary changes able to improve skin conditions. And we see gut treatments at large able to improve rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease. So since the symptoms can be so broad, I think it's helpful to help people or to, to provide people with a, a hierarchy, meaning start with the basics like we mentioned a few moments ago. And then if the basics don't get you to a point where you feel fully improved, the next thing to do would be to go through a gut evaluation, and that may include SIBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although I don't necessarily think you have to do a SIBO test, but you, you know uh, whether you use something like a self-help plan provided in the book or you work with a provider, the next thing I would do is do a gut health checkup. And then regarding the low FODMAP diet, the nice thing about the low FODMAP diet in many diets, if you use them pragmatically, is you only require two to three weeks on the diet to be able to ascertain whether or not that diet will help you. And so if you find the low FODMAP list on the internet, you only need about two weeks, maybe three weeks tops. And if you're not clearly noticing you're improved at the end of that two to three weeks, then that may not be the diet for you. And there's more that we can outline there, but I'll pause there in case you want to add anything to that. No, I just think that should be encouraging for everybody listening. I think people think that this is going to be a change forever. It's a, they're never going to be able to eat anything they ever want to again. Right. But I think, you know, just if you're out there suffering from some of these symptoms Dr. Ruscio is talking about, you know, just thinking like for two to three weeks, this is something that you're going to focus on. I think that's manageable. And tell us a little bit more about what that involves. Right. And you're absolutely right. It, it is it is manageable and it's important to know that this doesn't mean forever because oftentimes that's where people go. If you say you need X, mm-hmm. Y, or Z, people will immediately go to, oh, I can never have broccoli or asparagus again right. or right. onions or garlic. And, and no, um, most diets follow a similar trajectory of first, be a little bit strict. Yes, eliminate the foods not on the diet. But on the tail end of that, then you reintroduce the foods that you cut out to find out where your personal boundary for the diet is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a key aspect. And so that, that would be how you implement the FODMAP diet amongst many others. You start with a more strict application of the diet. And then you don't necessarily have to perform the reintroduction after two to three weeks. You just need to get to the two to three week mark and then reassess and say, yes, I'm clearly feeling better or eh, I don't really feel any different. And if you're saying, eh, then you move on to other diets or other therapeutic options. But if you're saying Got to yourself, it. yes, I clearly feel improved, then I would ride that diet until you see a plateau in your improvements, then wait a couple of weeks to make sure that you're stable in, in your new peak of health. And then you can perform a reintroduction from there. Got it. That's not bad, guys. We can all do that. That's not terrible. And those FODMAP foods that you're referring to, you've mentioned them a couple of times. You mentioned broccoli, garlic, onions. What else would be in that family of FODMAP foods that somebody would be consciously trying to remove? You know, what's funny is you're, you're, you are looking at a lot of seemingly healthy foods 
that I you know. cut out on the the, fa- the low FODMAP diet, which is why it can be so counterintuitive. So there's right. many vegetables that we would label as healthy, artichoke, asparagus, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, eggplant, onion, uh, app- uh, apples, mango, pear. So it's it's a, a list that uh, it would do one well to, to look at because, again, many of these we would stereotype as healthy foods. And it's not to say that they're unhealthy foods, but they're very rich in those prebiotics. This also includes a number of dairy products um, because dairy has the, the lactose that for some people mm-hmm. can uh, function very highly as a prebiotic and a number of grains like wheat and rye. And in fact, some of the research is suggesting that the reason why some people are benefiting from a gluten-free diet is because a gluten-free diet also restricts these FODMAPs. Ah. Um, and and also cauliflower is included in this and other vegetables. So um, there are a number of vegetables here that would seem healthy. And, and this can be the real curveball. And you alluded to this a moment ago, which is someone improves their diet, but they're not feeling any better. Sometimes mm-hmm. what happens is someone goes on a whole foods diet, but it's also a high FODMAP diet. And so they say, ah, oh, I'm improving my diet, but I feel, I may even feel worse. I feel more bloated or, or more right. gassy. And it may be because while they cut out all the processed foods, now they're eating a very FODMAP-rich diet. <laughs> that can be very frustrating. So what can you eat on the FODMAP diet? What are things that people usually, you know, when they cut all these, like you said, healthy foods that many of us love, what what can you eat on this particular diet? And that's the good news is there's there's a lot of food that you can eat. It's just needing that map, that, that diet mm-hmm. list to, to guide you. So you can use bok choy, carrots, beans, uh, green beans, that is, squash, potato, taro, zucchini, gluten-free bread products can work, blueberries, boysenberries, cranberries, kiwis, lemons, oranges, lactose-free milk, oats, so um, hard cheeses. Lots of options. So there's a lot you can do, So, um, but it's just having that little bit of a guide to help you go through your, your shopping uh, cart and say, okay, these are the foods I'm going to focus on and these are the foods I'm going to avoid. And I should also mention, it's not to say you can't have one bite of the right. high FODMAP foods during that two to three week diet experiment. You just want to reduce them as much as you can. If you go out for a work event one night and you have some broccoli, <laughs> it's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, you just want to attempt for an 80 to 90% compliance during your, your dietary experiment. And Dr. Ruscio, you have a book that uh, was just released in February called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. Are a lot of these lists and uh, resources in that particular book? Yes. This book comes with a number of handouts, not actually in the book, but uh, as part of the online compendium to the book. And Mm -hmm. so you'll have a handout for an elimination diet that cuts out those inflammatory foods like we mentioned a moment ago. You have a handout for a low FODMAP diet also with some resources for cookbooks um, and essentially a number of handouts to help you along your journey. Because in the book, I try to give people a map in terms of, okay, here's all the stuff you've heard about regarding your guts, uh, paleo diet, low carb, low fat, mm-hmm. low FODMAP, right. probiotics, enzymes, antimicrobial herbs. What, you know, what do we do when, how do we sequence this and how can we apply this information in such a way that we will be practical. We, you know, we won't go on crazy diets for too long and we'll, we'll use dietary supplements, but not overly use them and, and try to make this as efficient and as empowering of a process as we can. 
Well, actually, that was going to be my next question, because I am curious as to your opinion on, and I know you talk about this in the book, but I'm curious as to your opinion on the role of probiotics, on the role of digestive enzymes, other supplements that we see that are gut-based, bitters. I mean, there's a whole litany of, of, a, of a gut nutraceutical toolbox. What, what do you think works for somebody, you know, who's they understand the importance of diet. I always say if you don't master the diet component, then it's really hard for any supplement to do much for you. But but they've mastered the diet part. They've bought into the idea of SIBO. What are some of the supplements that you've seen work in the most efficient way when somebody's struggling with some of these different symptoms? Sure. That's a great question. The first thing, again, definitely diet. And, and that's why step one in the healing protocol in the book is a, a series of short mini experiments to help you find the best diet for you and for your gut, because it's not going to be the same for everyone. So mm -hmm. we, we want to do a little bit of tinkering to see if we can fix this with diet, because you're, again, you're absolutely right. That's where we want to start. It's very important because we don't want to be going on fancy supplements when the diet may be the cause of the problem. So definitely start there. But then in step two, we introduce and we outline enzyme therapy and, and also hydrochloric acid. Some people may have heard of, of hydrochloric acid or, or betaine hydrochloride, which, which mm -hmm. is a supplemental way to take the acid that your stomach produces as part of the digestive process. So we talk about enzymes and acid and then also probiotics. And that's really our step two. And probiotics can be very effective. Out of, out of all those I just mentioned, we have by far and away the best evidence supporting the beneficial role of, of probiotics. And probiotics have been shown to help with everything from bloating and constipation through anxiety and depression. And that's that's the far-reaching impact of the gut. It can even reach all the way to your brain and influence things like anxiety and depression. Probiotics can be very confusing for people because there are hundreds of products out there. And it seems like every few weeks, there's a new product out. And of course, every time a product is released, the company wants to market that product. So you, you get all these bits and bites and it's very hard to know why is this probiotic better or is it not any better? Is it the same as the other one I heard about previously? And in the book, I introduce a category system that's based on the research that helps people really simplify this. And we can simplify probiotics down to three main categories. Category one is a mixture of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains. And there are many probiotics that fit this bill. This right. is what most people will see in health food stores or may have tried previously. And that can be a very healthful type of probiotic. Our category one, lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strain mixture. So when you look on the label, you'll see mostly lactobacillus X or bifidobacterium Y or, or, or what have you. Category two is a healthy fungus known as Saccharomyces boulardii. And mm -hmm. on the label there, you'll see just or predominantly Saccharomyces boulardii. And then category three are soil-based or spore-forming probiotics. And you typically see different strains of bacillus in this type of formula. And when you can look at the probiotics through this lens, you don't have to try all the hundreds of different products out there, but say, okay, I'm going to try one probiotic from category one, one probiotic from category two, and one probiotic from category three and mm. figure out which one or maybe all three of those works well for me because what happens sometimes is let's say someone goes on a category two probiotic, the Saccharomyces boulardii, right. and they notice uh -huh. nothing. But then a few months later, they go on another probiotic. It has a different name, 
but I didn't read the label to realize this is essentially the same thing I was using before. It just has a different name on the label. And so when you understand that, you can greatly simplify the probiotic process and figure out what of this very healthful therapeutic line you should use and and then move on. Wow, what great information. I have so many more questions. I'm sure all of you out there listening are as well, but hopefully this episode has cleared up a little bit about SIBO, FODMAP, probiotics. I'm sure there's much more. Dr. Ruscio's book is A Healthy Gut, A Healthy You, which you can find on Amazon and anywhere that books are available. Dr. Ruscio, any parting thoughts before we say goodbye to you? This has been, I know, tremendously helpful to everybody out there listening. Well, well thank you. And, and what I would leave people with is... Remember that improving your gut health should be a journey that makes you feel empowered and it should not make you feel feel uh, fearful or afraid of food or dependent upon supplements. And so if, if you're getting that feeling with whatever you're reading or listening to, I would, I would you know, uh, urge you to, to take, take some steps to try to find some information that seems a bit more empowering and, and a, a bit less you know, fear-mongering because unfortunately... There is a fair amount out, out there on the internet, and I, I see yeah. more patients than I'd like to admit come in who are very distraught around this issue. And, and that's why I wrote Healthy Gut, Healthy You, is to give people a, a guide that would not make them fearful, would help them feel empowered, because that feeling of fear is not healthy for you. And so it's, it's important that you're not afraid, and, and there's really no need for you to be afraid. Uh, and, and so that's that's what I would leave people with. I love that. I couldn't agree more. And for everybody out there listening, grab a copy of Dr. Ruscio's book. It's Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's on Amazon. And remember, we want you empowered. And every day is an opportunity for you to find your power and write your own personal prescription for power. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Ruscio. Thank you.